And the roots just broil over the sidewalk and broil <laughs> over the curb there yeah. into the street and buckle the street. I mean, they're super trees. You are listening to Urban Wildlife Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is your co-host, Tony's not here today, but this is your co-host, Billy Brown. Feel free to get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. You can find us on Facebook. So I am Laura Roman from the U.S. Forest Service, Philadelphia Field Station. And this is Jason. And I'm Jason Lubar. I'm the Associate Director for Urban Forestry at Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania. All right. So um, we are also joined by my daughter, Gilda, who might speak up here and there um, and, and, and work into the podcast. We'll see. Um, she's a pretty mellow baby, but she still likes to talk, and I, I worry that Laura will not be able to complete the interview. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's looking googly eyes at her. <laughs> so um, my first question I wanted to ask is... Uh, well, actually, I'll set this up by saying um, I met Laura almost a year ago at an event um, for our day jobs. Well, this is about your day job, kind of, but not at all about mine. Um, uh, and um, But I, I saw the table with Forest Service people, and I had to chat them up because um, it was a lot more interesting because no one was coming to this event, and we were sort of tabling and talking to nobody. Um, in any case, um, we got to talking about uh, what we're... What, I talked about the podcast a little bit and writing for Creed Magazine, and you were talking about... Um, Forest Service stuff, but also your interest in London plane trees. Mm -hmm. And I have my usual reaction to London plane plane trees, which is, I don't like them very much. Um, And I don't know if I have like, (laughs) if I have like logical, reasonable reasons for not liking them. Um, But like, I, I was, I was talking to Tony about this, who's the the co-host of the podcast, um, where for me, like, I think of them as the tree equivalent of hostas. Um, which They're for me all are like, over the place. Yeah, it's it's the, what you put somewhere when you don't have the imagination to put something more interesting there. Um, so, which might be way too harsh. We may come back to that theme. So, so this is also going to be kind of like a convince me kind of podcast. Um, uh, and, but I'll start off by asking, uh, what is a London plane tree? Does it fly? Is it from London? <laughs> um, uh, so... Um, I'll give the first part of the explanation and let Jason chime in and then tell you about the confusion in the past, which right. relates to why they were so popular. So it's a hybrid, uh, Platinus ex acerifolia. It's a hybrid between the American sycamore, Platinus occidentalis, and the often called oriental plain, Platinus orientalis. Um, that hybrid emerged uh, by accident, I think 17th century, uh, but nobody knew about it for a long time. Nobody knew that that had actually happened. Uh, right. Botanists took a very long time to figure it out. Um, anything else you want and, to say about the hybridization? And the first uh, record, plant record of it, is uh, was described in Spain. That's why the new uh, Latin name is Platinus Hispanica. Oh, thank you, thank you, Jason. Uh, and uh, <laughs> but that's still under debate. Under but debate, the yeah. the at this point, that was the first description, so that name takes precedence. Aha. And you'll also see Platinus acerifolia without the X, or Platinus orientalis, like variety acerifolia and some of the older so records. So the leaves look kind of like a, a maple? Is that why the acerifolia? I would yeah. guess so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Because the orientalis has 
larger leaves, lots more lobes. Uh, okay. It's a very interesting leaf, whereas our American sycamore looks sort of like a, a sugar maple leaf, generally. It does, yeah. yeah. Right. But they're also rather hard to tell apart when they're young. And um, from some study that was in Pittsburgh some years back, I don't know if you heard of this one, there was a lot more genetic variation in the past in the London Plain. Um, whereas in the last few decades, it's been a few uh, cultivars planted um, that are probably much more genetically similar. But in any case, way back when these trees would have been planted that we're standing other, we're near the Rodin Museum um, in downtown Philly. Yep. These trees would have been called Orientalis. Okay. So people who were planting these trees in the um, 1800s up through the early 1900s uh, planting records at Philly Parks and Rec, formerly from Park Commission, they were listing as Orientalis, Orientalis, Orientalis. And why that matters is because the Oriental Plain was famous in ancient Greece. Okay. And so these descriptions in these old forestry textbooks would go on and on about the importance of the Oriental Plain to the Greeks. Got it. And also talk about how the Oriental Plain was at that time, like City Beautiful Movement era, when there was this big push for city beautification, making big boulevards. They would talk about how the Oriental Plain was so popular already in Paris. So with like a, so cities with sort of classical, like tastes and pretensions and like having big Greek trees or okay I get it trees right. that trees that were already very popular in London very popular in Paris and meant something to the ancient ah. Greeks okay right and they were very adaptable to very adaptable to urban right conditions <laughs> too yes. yeah so that was another right. thing that came up a yeah. lot in the old again these old like horticultural um, texts and magazines and nursery uh, catalogs and forestry books, they would say the London Plain can, or well they would say the Oriental Plain can tolerate city fumes. There you go. So they were talking about pollution and that's why it supposedly did so well in London. You'll still see that today. Right. Today in like any kind of arboricultural guide to trees, oh the London Plain got that name because it could do okay in London with the fume and I don't know, I think people get the history a little mixed up sometimes because right. like you said, new things learned about Spain. But um, and it, it also had this reputation of being pest and disease free. Okay. Back in its heyday of when everyone thought it was Oriental Plain. Right. And today, uh, well, what happened was these trees evolved in the floodplains. So. Which is they, where you see American sycamores. Right. Yeah. It's, you yeah. see yeah. them classically in river quarters. Right so, on yeah. river quarters, the bone white mm-hmm. uh, branches and trunk of our American native sycamores just line wetlands and wet areas you don't see them anywhere else but there naturally yes we have planted them in gardens and arboretum and our landscapes all over the place um but in nature you only see them down by the creek and just imagine that it's the the soil is very granular washes away ice flows come and and hit the trunk and so the uh, wood fibers had to evolve to withstand all those slings and arrows of natural forces. And that's one of the reasons why they do so well in our urban environments. They're used to compacted soil. I mean, that's a big problem in our urban setting. We're standing on the soil now. We're compacting them. These trees can tolerate that because they grew up in the floodplain. They can tolerate pollution, and they're actually really good at capturing pollution. You know, these are our large trees. You look around, what are the largest trees here? Mostly are London Plains. Mostly, yep. Yeah, and they capture the pollution. They slow down the air, and, and uh, the particles of pollution actually get deposited on their leaves where wow. rainwater washes them into the soil. I do I do need to point out, though, Can that I the... pause really yes. quick just to do 
baby stuff. We're all uh, snug yeah, here. Yeah. There we go. Right, we're yeah. that recording. Um, what were we saying? I don't uh, remember. So you were talking about, you were ta- we're talking, we've gone through sort of the... The ubiquitous of the planes. Well, the, they're the, everywhere. You were talking about the American sycamore yeah. and the genetics. So the, 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 so when did people start oh, oh, noticing these? The, the I was about to say something. That's right, right. I remember. You were talking about all of its virtues in terms of the wonderful things it does right, as right. a large tree. Also, allergens. So they have these little hairs on the other side of the leaves, um, which I don't see any on the ground right next to us. They've probably been <laughs> swept up because it's a very landscape kind of area. Yeah. But um, they have these, these little hairs that are, I mean, they're on the list of things you'll get tested for if you have seasonal allergies. It'll, you know, platinus is one of the checkboxes. We just got uh, my husband and my daughter's tested for allergies, so I noticed that. <laughs> so that's a downside. Um, it's a downside. And also what's kind of amazing to me is this has been recognized for well over 100 years so some of these descriptions that would tout you know super tree free of pests and you know tolerate city fumes you know, but the great, one great, problem but but oh it happens to have you know these right. these things that will irritate people but it wasn't mentioned that often and part of why i think this is interesting is because most other trees had downsides mentioned more regularly okay. in these old records so an old records question I have for you. Yeah. Um, and so we, for in the podcast, we've done episodes like about um, the the house sparrow and how it was introduced in the sort of mid late eighteen hundreds to combat mm. inchworm infestations of mm. urban trees. Um, mm. They called them something else back then. Um, basically, inchworms. Yeah. Uh, moths, you know, looper, whatever that were uh, that people saw as as just annihilating all the the urban trees. Um, how did how do the, the London Plains? I mean, did, were, was that part of the thinking that they were resistant to? You well, said that they don't. They, they were right. Not they that were pests. right. They were pretty uh, disease-free. Uh, however, they do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> like our native sycamores, they get uh, anthracnose, which is a leaf fungal disease, which okay. usually comes about when it's cold and wet in the spring. And the leaves, it gets on the leaves, it kills the leaves, it gets into the twigs and can cause what's known as witch's brooms, which are distorted growth. And then the leaves fall down, everybody's like, oh, the tree must be dead. It's mm-hmm. not, it just has anthracnose, just wait a few weeks, and it mm-hmm. releaves, it leaves out again, yeah. and it dries out and everything's fine. Uh, there's also powdery mildew the leaves can get, which is a white mildewy substance on it that can cause the leaves to curl and fall off. Um, yeah, and these the are time. these are pretty common yeah. for these trees, and some are much more resistant than others. That's why they're making cultivars now to make them resistant. But those uh, are non-fatal, resistant. right? I mean, right, they're, it's, not... they're they're non-fatal. The tree can usually live through it. Now, okay. if you get anthracnose year after year after year, the tree is like a battery. It's holding energy from the sun. It needs that energy, and it can. It's like a battery. So. After uh, successive years of anthracnose, it can run the battery, quote-unquote, down, and the tree can suffer that way. But usually it's uh, non-fatal, at least in the short term. Okay. But we can treat these. If you have a problem with your London plane, you can treat them either by spray or injection. Uh, so it's it's actually better for the tree if you do that every once in a while. That way the tree has you its leaves. The batteries, right, you recharge yeah. the batteries. So what about... Um, so? So I say this, knowing it, in my own mind, I I like having trees around that have bugs on them to some extent to feed birds and other things, um, and but I know that's also a downside when you're choosing a tree that'll be hardy and 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 survive for more than a few years on your corner. Um, and I'm looking right here behind over your shoulder, Jason, and I just with the way the sky is, I can see little holes in a lot of the leaves that we're looking at. 
um, are those uh, from pests or is that it could be uh, uh, from pests there are things that uh, uh, skeletonizers or beetles that eat the inside of leaf then there's the inchworms you talked about and other caterpillars that can eat the outside of the leaves so these are used uh, especially the older ones very importantly for habitat are you know we're in a, a urban setting there aren't really that many large trees around and large yeah. trees provide that habitat with hollows or places where squirrels can live and places where birds can live Pause for one second. <laughs> oh are we mowing here all right so we are recording again um <laughs> hello again we had to move uh we had we, we were we had to jump art museums um so we were next to the rodan museum uh, which i guess is part of the philadelphia art museum organizationally yeah. <laughs> and then um we are now sitting in front of the barnes foundation foundation thank you barnes foundation which is a relatively old institution but new location here on the parkway um but still has a bunch of london plane trees yeah and I wanted to mention, because I don't think we stressed this enough earlier, just how badly Philadelphia wanted to be Paris. So we are on the Ben Franklin Parkway, which is the imitation Champs-Élysées. Right, I mean, right. it explicitly imitates that boulevard, that grand old boulevard in Paris. And so the, um, the French connection, this like wanting to be a European-style cosmopolitan city, just can't yeah. be stressed enough. And in the old reports from the Fairmont Park Commission... Um, which started controlling street trees in, in 1912 and had been in this kind of late 1800s, early 1900s era, building up the, the park system all across the city. So in their annual reports and the annual reports of the City Parks Association, Paris gets mentioned all the time. Uh. And not just Paris, but Paris and its street trees. And Paris has so many street trees. And, oh, this is how much they spend taking care of them. And shouldn't we be doing that? And, oh, they have so many street trees. And this many of them are Oriental Plain, again, with the species confusion. Um, and what was really fun, actually, like a little sidebar for... Anyone listening who uh, either is from Philly or familiar with Philly, there was such a Philly attitude to these old reports. It was, we're going to be very kind of self-deprecating and like all the things wrong with our city and how it's managing its trees and all that. And then when the parkway goes in, it was, we're the best city ever, the best thing any any city's done this century. It was very like, this, you know, hate on our city, but also think it's the best city and no one else should pick on it. (laughs) Yeah, and it wasn't like Philly was a rundown, poor city. That's when Philadelphia was like a... Oh, big industrial. Sure, sure. But we had been overtaken by Washington politically as a political powerhouse, by New York population and commerce-wise. So there was already this sort of inferiority complex that came through, to me, loud and clear in those (laughs) those, uh, early records. Um, I'll I'll just point on the French thing. We went from a museum dedicated to Rodin to a museum that's full of French Impressionists. (laughs) And and the architecture down here is very inspired by the Beaux-Arts tradition and the the gentleman who planned this landscape, Paul Cray and Jacques Hébert, who designed the Rodin Museum and designed the Parkway and designed Rittenhouse. They did a whole lot of other stuff. I mean, they were French-trained architects, landscape architects. Um, So the French connection runs deep. And there was uh, also the importance of Philadelphia being the center of botany for such a long time, the center of botany and horticulture in all of North America, I think. I mean, it was yeah, called the cradle much. of horticulture. I don't think we're the leaders anymore. <laughs> I mean, we still have a lot of important institutions, but... Uh, well, we had started off with the Bartrams and... Right. Yeah. Bartram, Hamilton. So having all these really important people. Uh, and and it, again, in this kind of turn of the 20th century time frame, there were different people that were from uh, France or from England. And, and they were 
some of them saying things about the plane tree, this oriental plane they thought it was. And I mean, I wrote down one little quote for you guys. Uh, a guy named Thomas Nuttall, he was an English botanist, ties to Philadelphia. He yeah, carried on yeah. uh, some of the work that Michaud did, who was a French forester botanist. Um, he wrote in 1842, this tree deserves to be planted in the United States. So I find it really Is that hard to believe. 1940, 18, 18. 18, excuse me, 1842. Yeah. Okay. I find it really hard to believe that people in Philadelphia would not have been aware of that fact that yeah. he that he said this um, in this important book. And then a botanist and entomologist, McQuart, if I'm saying that correctly, from from France, he said in 1851, Oriental Plain is one of the most celebrated trees. And then by 1912, that kind of same language is making its way into a report from a shade commission in New Jersey. So I think there was this kind of perpetuating of this. Um, just love affair with the Oriental Plain. And again, the, the elm was also getting quite a lot of attention. The American elm is very important in terms of U.S. history. Right here in Philadelphia, there was a, according to legend, apparently it didn't really happen, historians have been telling me, <laughs> that uh, the uh, a treaty was signed between the Lenape Lenape Indians and William Penn under this gorgeous old American elm, yeah, memorialized in... Over, you were talking about the elm, yeah, the elm, not elm king. Right, right. So cities in New England and the upper Midwest got overloaded with elms, just like we got overloaded with planes. Now, lucky us, the planes haven't all died, like the elms all died from, from Dutch elm. But, um, I mean, lo- people have investigated the, the elm much more in, in terms of urban forestry scholarship because it was such a, a traumatic loss when they all died. Um, and and so, sort of coming on the heels of the chestnut loss. Also. Right, right, right. And so um, different cities still retain names, like New Haven is still called Elm City. Yep. Um, but so the uh, the elm was so celebrated, and there were some elms here. I mean, there were elms native here, there were some elms planted, um, but it was nowhere near as popular. So in some tree planting records from the city that uh, I found from the like the 30s and 40s, the plane tree was like 40% of all street trees planted, and the elm was like 2%. And why I, I think this was is that, again, these botanists uh, in Philadelphia, nursery growers, uh, people like Thomas Meehan, different publications from this, you know, huge array of people with botanical expertise, they were saying, well, the elm has this beetle. And this elm leaf beetle, this is well before Dutch elm disease um, came about, but oh, you have to spend money managing it. And another recurring theme in the old reports was Philly doesn't have enough money to manage anything. (laughs) So you had this kind of, you know, well, let's plant something that doesn't require as much resources to take care of. Um, and then there was also this idea of the kind of climate tolerances. So even though we do have elms that grew here natively in our city, um, the the descriptions would say, oh, the, the elm doesn't do so well this far south. And likewise, it would say, oh, the plain doesn't do so well up in New England. And I'm not totally sure how true that is, but I still see it in yeah, current I mean, horticultural I texts. Some, of this, right. I mean, some big old Americans, I and mean, I hope those are Americans that I'm talking about now that I say it, but like in Baltimore, I remember some just like groves of huge elm trees um, that I thought were sort of survivor Americans, but I'm not... Or maybe they've been treated. Yeah, I mean, like, the huge one on the, the huge one on the Penn campus has been treated. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a descendant of the treaty. Washington, D.C., I remember around the white... The elms, yeah. White yeah. House, some massive and elms. up in New York, you know, yeah. the elms of Central Park. Yeah, yeah. So I think climate-wise, then, we could... Right. I think so too, and I've also seen plane trees do just fine further north. But then yeah. there'd be these reports of like, oh no, all these, you know, or again, One Oriental plains, like all these Oriental plains, you know, had frost down. problems yeah. in New York City. But New York City has tons of plains now, and they're hugely popular I mean, isn't there that too. The symbol of the park system in New York. Yeah, though the, the well, uh, this, yeah, London plane leaf. Yeah, yeah, sort of a London plane maple mashup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the point is that that these considerations of what trees belong where. 
are based on the lived experiences of tree professionals. Yeah. And so we are sitting under the artifacts of their decisions and what they thought was suitable for where. Some of it has to do with right all those kind of urban stresses Jason was talking about earlier. And some of it has to do with, you know, the reality and the perception of climate, pests and diseases, so on and so forth. But again, it's a, one of the bulletproof, pretty much a bulletproof tree, and that's why you see it planted. And that's why you see here, it's, these are long-lived trees, and if everything remains the same, which it never does... <laughs> um, oh, come on. <laughs> sorry, we'll we keep, we keep I, th- I think yeah. they're just getting the um, leaf bags. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Um, we'll but yeah, pause. we do have to tell you about canker seeing, because yeah. so it was actually banned. I didn't realize until I started this research. The lemon plane tree was banned. Anyway, right, let's turn back on. You were talking, because we, on our walk over from one art museum to the other, <laughs> as we were trying to evade the, the landscapers, um, you were pointing out on what looked like an American uh, sycamore, some right, and, and it had uh, what's known as canker stain on it. And this fungus, it's really virulent in, in Europe. I mean, it can cause a large London plane tree or plane trees to die two, three years very okay. quickly. Uh, and here in the United States, it's, it seems to be chronic and may cause death eventually. But for some reason, and I haven't figured this out yet, it would be a great study. It's not as virulent here as it is over in Europe. So as Laura said, it was banned the plane tree was banned because of canker stain and the worries because it was just sweeping through europe as it still is in places killing trees but here we've seen trees with it um 10 20 last 30 40 years but the problem is when you have a tree infected with canker stain an arborist comes and the arborist uses his or her tools on it, saws, what have you, mm-hmm. and then goes and prunes the next, the next London one. plane. Uh, and what happens is the, the fungus has sticky, little sticky spores on it that stick to your tools. Okay. And you're spreading it. And I've seen it actually spread down lines of London planes or sycamores uh, when they're well, doing street tree now, pruning. Oh, because they're just going quickly. And yeah, they're just going quickly, yeah. shearing off branches. The idea that you have to clean your pruning right. tool has been in the suite of arboriculture best practices for, for decades now. Yeah. I mean, since, since, since the mid-1900s, Sterilize again, I've been reading tools. through all these old records, it yeah. would be like, yeah. all right, so the canker stain, big problem, big problem, but okay, we can we can fix it by removing trees when their infections have gotten really bad and then cleaning our pruning tools, going from one tree to the other. But, but does it happen? Right, does nah, it happen in real sometimes. life? Um, uh, yeah. Real arborists, you know, not real arborists, but <laughs> the, larger arborists, <laughs> the larger arborist companies and a lot of smaller ones too know this and will sterilize their tools it's when you get in a situation i think with utility line clearance they're just going down the line they 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 you know have to spend this much time on it so they don't really care right right yeah Yeah. and it's it's entirely possible in terms of the different um levels of intensity of canker stain here versus europe it's entirely possible that our population of london plains have a bit more of the American sycamore in them. Right. I mean, because the, the canker stain is a disease from the U.S. It was actually found in Pennsylvania oh. in the 30s. Um, so it could be one of these like, but, endemic, non-fatal things. Right. right. Or and, it could and, be the, the disease itself is uh, uh, changed genetics yeah. over in Europe. Some combination. We, we don't, I, I've yeah. never read anything on that. It would be a great uh, yeah, research opportunity. It would, it would be really cool, and I would think that folks in Europe would want to 
investigate this because, again, this having been an iconic tree for so long in different European um, cities and settlements, um, they're quite worried. I right. mean, for the, for the last 15, 20 years, there's been a bunch of, oh, no, the canker stain. And, you know, we always think of the uh, diseases coming over, say, from Asia and impacting our vegetation. Say, so now yeah. we're sending something yeah. over to Europe. It works both ways. Yeah. Um, but so the, the canker stain issue... Uh, again, first arose in the 30s. I found some things from USDA talking about canker stain, such a problem. And then uh, I'm not entirely sure when this uh, um, disapproval or ban started in Philly, but by at least the, the early 60s. So I found a newspaper article from a former uh, head of like arboriculture in Fountain Park, Bar- Bob McConnell, saying you know all these things about planting street trees in the city and we have to take take care of them and you know who wants to get a street tree planted in front of their property but oh we won't approve of that plane tree anymore and also the the species confusion was continuing because it was called the london plane and the buttonwood which is another name for the american sycamore <laughs> or it was called the plane so like anyway the tree that is ubiquitous on our streets london the plane or whatever we want to whatever right we want to call it yeah. right you would say oh all this canker stain problem we've already had to remove all these trees because of this problem we're not going to approve it anymore and yet and yet they were still planted they were still planted in the 60s. And what he told me on a phone call, so he's buddies with Lori Hayes at Parks and Rec. Yeah, um, he's in his He's yeah. in his 90s now, and uh, she chats with him now and then as sort of a mentor relationship. And she brought me over to her office. We called up Bob McConnell, and I thought that he was the one planting all these plane trees. I thought that it was like the city. This was before I realized there was a man. Yeah. He said, no, it wasn't me. I like the ginkgo. And he was saying oh. all these things he liked. And it makes sense, though, because he was very involved in the ISA, the International right. Society of Arboriculture. He would have been very aware of problems with the plane tree. Yeah. And it also, I, I didn't ask him, but I would think he'd be aware of the push for more diversity at that time, like right. 60s, 70s. But he said... So you so don't that, have, like, one species everywhere that's right, right, hit right. by right. a right. So this right. monoculture problem, whether it was yeah. the elm tree that that happened to or the plane tree, where to some extent it's had these problems. But so he says... No, the developers would put it on their plans. I would disapprove of them, and they'd go above my head to City Hall. And my mind just blew, because oh. that's such a you know thing that could happen in our city where <laughs> developers get their way. But it's also, I think there's this underappreciated role of housing developers and real estate in the selection of street trees. So if you think about where you find massive amounts of plane trees, not where we're sitting on the parkway, it's more kind of museums and commercial. Yeah. Think about row houses yeah. with row after row of London planes, and the trees are roughly-ish the same age as the housing. Yeah. Who picked those? The developers. The developer was, yeah. And also in the records from the um, the Farron Park Commission, uh, you know, before this ban was in place, back in, like, again, 30s, 40s, there were these columns of, of um, uh, different categories of planting. So there was planting different species and then planted by the city, by the commission, planted by permit, which always outnumbered planting by the commission. And who was getting the permits? Uh, I haven't been able to find like a paper trail of the permits, but I'm guessing yeah, a lot of those permits were new housing. Right. Also interesting, planted planted by the Works Progress Administration. So Works Progress oh. Administration was doing street tree work, not it's just rural conservation. Yeah, depression yeah. era plantings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think that 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 relationship between developers and species selection continues to this day because you know, I haven't seen a lot of literature on it, but just from talking to arborists and you hear these things come up in arboricultural conferences and such that in subdivisions, in suburban subdivisions today, instead of one tree, you'll have like three species and they'll alternate every other yard. They won't be street trees, they'll be yard trees, yeah. but still, it's who's picking it. They don't have an arborist on staff usually. I mean, the arborists get annoyed. Why didn't you talk to us <laughs> early on? It's usually well, the, the developers, yeah. maybe right. an architect, maybe a landscape architect, and they're, and they're usually hamstrung by like what's available in bulk right. from the nurseries. Right. 
And so you take that same kind of dynamic, put it many decades past when the push was for monoculture, not any sort of diversity, and the push was for bigger shade trees, not smaller ornamentals, and you end up with, in our city, tons and tons of London plane trees. Which is not a bad thing, and that's what we, we push diversity and we understand diversity. But these trees, look at them. They're, we know they uh, uh, survive and thrive here. So we shouldn't stop planting them, but perhaps we should plant less and less of them. But here it was used as a statement. You know, here's the grand yeah. boulevard. Evocative and, of Europe. <laughs> right, and yeah. it has to be uniform. And that's something, if you notice the trees in the middle, these are new trees in the middle. Uh, there is diversity there. The um, uh, city picked three or four trees and planted a diversity trees to mix it up a little, but still have the uniformity of structure and form that we see here today. So what are we looking at? We're looking at um, what kind of, just over Oh, there's the uh, oaks, there's red oaks, uh, schumard oaks, uh, maples. What else was there? Did we plant lindens? Yeah, I forget. There's, uh, might be lindens in there too, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, and you can see the forum. If you stop and ask people, people wouldn't probably notice. You know, your tourists walking by wouldn't notice the diversity. Yeah, I also think there's a real value aesthetically to monocultures on a particular block. Right. I mean, you risk if something comes through killing that block, but if you can have block to block variation. Um, but this idea of the you know uniform structure, kind of cathedral effect, they'll call it, yeah, which yeah. also can trap air pollutants. Right. That's hotly debated now amongst ecologists and epidemiologists is the mixed relationships between well, the trees and air pollution. Well, on the way over here, I was walking by one of the towers on the south side of the parkway, and they have like, or where was it exactly? But it was, it was like a a triangular section of land which was had all been planted with honey locusts. And it had a nice kind of like uniform. It was yeah, uniform, yeah. but it had a very nice effect. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm partisan of the honey locust also. But <laughs> I just wish they planted them with the thorns. Like <laughs> I love those thorns so up. much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's like they. I, I don't. I mean, do you have any? I don't know if it's a real practical problem of people getting impaled on the thorns. Yeah. Well, when you first plant them, they can be at eye level, and that's no good for anybody. <laughs> you know, getting stuck by one of those thorns. Uh, and that tree, it's interesting. You go up to that tree and you touch one of the thorns, and it's amazing how sharp it is. How did yeah. that get so sharp? Why does this thing have thorns? <laughs> and you realize these trees evolved back right, when there were right. the megafaunas. And, you know, the large ground slaws trying to get at the seed pods. Those are thorns for mastodons right there. Right, yeah. right. And it's a... Keep it's large a great, things off. Great book, Ghost of Evolution. Um, there you go. The author's name I'm blanking on right now. That sounds but cool. Look up Ghost of Evolution. It's oh, all shit. about uh, basically trees, uh, American trees with features evolved for extinct megafauna. So, um, like, the Osage orange uh, has fruit that were that were not meant for white-tailed deer, right? Yeah, right. Um, and uh, even the pot, I guess deer eat honey locust pods, but still, yeah, the thinking was were, that they right. were they were more mastodon or ground sloth food than... There, there's a tree-related yeah. book club that our colleagues at PHS run. I'll have to check that book out and see if they want to add it to their, yeah, <laughs> to their it's list. It's a great book. It is. Um, so... Well, one thing I'd like to say about the wonderful plane trees in our city As we convince is, you that they're... I, know, yeah. I, know, I, know. I mean, look at the bark. It's very nice bark. They can be architectural if they're pruned that way. But 
look at them in our in our streets in our city in 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 the highly populated areas and the roots just broil over the sidewalk and broil <laughs> over the curb there yeah. into the street and buckle the street i mean they're super trees and it's amazing to see these <laughs> old trees that are now like in the street and people can't well, park next they, to them but they have and, like you know only a few square yards of of what looks like few square yards of right. free space, well, and they're all the rest right. of it's But the roots have to be somewhere. I know. The roots is, of these the, trees have these to be where are they water? going? Yeah, and they're <laughs> just going underground. They're finding it. Just Philadelphia, you know, we're not up high. Leaky it's not well lines. drained here. Yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. yeah and water line leaks. And also, we have a lot of really great mulch. This concrete mulch, it keeps the water trapped underground <laughs> in the streets. So the water stays underground and doesn't get a chance I'll, to I'll evaporate. I sidewalk yeah. from Arbor's perspective. Yeah. But for, for, for what it's worth, though, with all mulch. these problems that can emerge in terms of disrupting sidewalks and whatnot as the trees get massive and old, the newer tree plantings along streets are not these huge shade trees. No, they're picking these right. little. They're picking little right. things. And I love service berries. I was getting service berries on the way service over, but it's like a tree of that size or. But, but yeah. so there's there's this right tree, right place concept that um, is uh, really being pushed in relation to overhead utility lines. But yeah. it has to do with more than that of you know finding the the tree that is suitable to the conditions at the site. But and won't cost like ten thousand yeah. dollars to take care of. Yeah, for but, but so yeah. With the increasing push for smaller stature and also more ornamental trees that residents ask for, well, we're losing the shade. We're losing the shade. Right. Yeah, yeah, we're losing the shade, well, and we're losing all these other benefits that these huge trees provide. And once they're taken down, I mean, I, I think, and I, and I would imagine a lot of other colleagues in professional arboriculture and research would think that we're having this this shift away from street tree populations dominated by large shade trees. The Nora maples, yeah. the elms that have already all died, um, ash are coming down different cities, and then here we have London Plain, and now they're getting replaced. Yeah, they're getting replaced, if they are getting replaced at all, which is a different matter, right? But like, yeah. when plantings are happening, they are much more often, you're smaller to me, and maybe they'll COVID, maybe something's a bit more medium, yeah. but you're you're rarely getting these large stature trees, because people say, you know, a city like Philadelphia, we don't have your wide tree planting lawn like you have in the midwestern cities right right we have these tiny soil pits narrow planting strips and we're in an unusual the, spot in philadelphia and that we have this big right, buffer this of grass lawn. yeah if you're in my block in west philly we yeah hardly you have yeah. anything yeah. but there's so many blocks philly. of, of yeah. west philly lined with gorgeous old plane trees and they're doing just fine you know, <laughs> they're doing just fine right. and these trees have like these large london plains they can equal you know the benefits from a hundred or two hundred smaller stature trees. Oh yeah, and that is what you're talking about: yeah. soaking right. up water, right? Soaking up pollution, that kind right. of stuff. Providing yeah. oxygen, providing shade, providing cooling, yeah. and also there's a um, people don't realize this, but if you have a large tree next to your house or at your house on the street, it actually improves property values. Yeah, I mean does. these trees put money in your pocket by planting these large statuesque trees on your property i know yes you need to take care of them and you need to sweep up but look people pay money to join gyms this is exercise you're getting out there you're meeting your neighbors you're talking yes you're cleaning up your trees and maybe you're even taking that and putting it in your small backyard and composting and oh, helping no, you're the soil choir, man. yeah and, and I'll, I'll point out the um as someone who's gotten into birding um the Number one, I, I've come to love oaks for what I see. Our war, like warbors coming yeah, through, eating yeah. in. Um, but I, uh, I'll note that I have seen. It, it seems to be a reliable thing now that I think 
now that I've spent a couple springs looking at this, is Orioles seem to love the seed pods of the or the seed clusters of the plane trees. Mm. So I'll, I, I've a couple times I've been walking around Independence Historical Park, which is near my office, um, and had like a little like snow of <laughs> of London plane tree seeds like drifting down. I look up when there's an Oriole up there picking one apart. Um, but even in in West Philly, um, I'll see. You know, I've seen a few. Um, I'll just be riding my bike to work, and I'll hear, uh, let's say, black-footed green warbler or a northern perula, and it's going to be in a larger shade tree. It's not right. in a because these are birds that yeah. function in the upper canopy. Like, right, they right, like right. the upper canopy. They don't like being close to the ground. Yeah. So you'll always have to look up to see orioles, and rarely do they come down and uh, to the ground. So right, the the decisions we make on choosing our trees affect a whole bunch of different things like birds, wildlife, and even us. And and for many, many decades. I mean, when we talk about some of these different problems that have come from the trees, especially as they they age, right? As they age and they might disrupt different kinds of built infrastructure, or you might have concerns of when this tree needs to come down, uh, how much it's going to cost, and and, and managing the risk, making sure it's not going to hurt anybody or, or any property or any power lines. But the thing is, these are... I'm going to call them anthropogenically constructed populations. I mean, sure. so much of the work that I do is actually not about history. So I'm a research ecologist. I largely study things like tree mortality and canopy cover change and stuff like that. But when we talk about tree mortality, it's removal. So we're talking about humans deciding what to plant, humans deciding what to remove. Yeah. So that demographic process, that process of population change and dynamics, that's all human controlled. And so, yes, we plant them. And then, yes, at some point we have to remove them. And it's partly just making sure that that idea of plant, maintain, remove, replace is perpetuated in the culture and in the city management. It's very hard to do because, you know, our boracultural work at the municipal level is underfunded and it's um, uh, it's hard to think that far ahead. Right. You have to have sort of, you know, plans being executed over decades maybe hundreds of years it's hard at any scale to do that right Um, and it's it's the temporal aspect is always challenging to cities around uh the united states just the money to deal with this and also we're looking at climate change these london plains will they survive climate change well probably they will for a while but 50 years 100 years 200 years i mean the city should be around for 500 years a thousand years what will we be planting in the future and how will we look ahead to find tree species that are adapted to future conditions? And, and we can be thankful that people who planted these trees selected these massive shade trees, right? Yeah. We can appreciate that, even if they're not still your favorite tree, right? <laughs> but like, we can appreciate that we are sitting under shade and we right. can hope that decisions are made today to yeah. allow the same kind of of benefits for society for you know wildlife if that's your priority into the future because one of the you know one of the other kind of key things that motivated my research into this um aside from the curiosity of why plains and not elms in philly um was that my fellow ecologists have increasingly been looking at things like spatial patterns in species composition or in levels of diversity of urban vegetation or in tree cover across or within cities and then trying to correlate it against things like um things things like socioeconomic patterns, so U.S. Census data. Or maybe they'll include topography if they think of that. Or maybe they'll include, like, housing age. But I look at that kind of analysis and I go, well, those trees weren't planted today. Yeah. Right? You want to investigate 
why we have the trees we have them and where we have them, we have to look at what decisions that were made in the past. So the few studies that have included things like census data from decades ago, that's better correlated with these yeah. different kind of urban vegetation patterns today. And again, something like species composition, it's okay, we could try to crunch some numbers across multiple cities, but ultimately it's a historical kind of analysis question. And who selected the trees? Why did they select them? This issue of developers is something that, again, light bulbs went off in my head when I heard that on the phone with the old arborist the one day, <laughs> but it makes complete sense. And so I'm trying to highlight that in this work that I have not yet published about the London Plain, but I'm you know, I was working ask towards. You about this. So there are there product are there something we should be looking to read? Not yet. Not yet. All right. Okay. <laughs> not yet. Keep, keep tuned. I, mean, I have some other. I have some other papers about history and urban forests, but not one that's specific to the London Plain yet. It's okay. on, ongoing this summer. We're st- we're still digging in the archives. But All today, right. uh, when planting street trees, that's governed by ordinances in a lot of the communities around Philadelphia and on the East Coast, and well, all across the United States. So they have tree lists. You know, here's what you can plant, and right. here's what you can't. Some of these tree lists are from the 40s and 50s, and aren't <laughs> and aren't applicable today. We get hired to, you know, update all these ordinances, and so that tree list is constantly updating depending on what the performance of the trees are, what new introductions they are, and so forth. And so a lot of the street trees, at least, come from uh, ordinances. And those ordinances have to pass through zoning, have to pass through design. And so there are places where we can sculpt uh, the diversity of our street trees. I'd like to point out, too, that there's having the ordinances on the books, and I mean, you know this, and then there's implementing them. Right. So one of the challenges in Philly with street trees, and this, I mean, relates to the London Plain, but also street tree management more broadly, is that um, you're not supposed to remove trees without permission. Yeah. But in reality, the fine is low and maybe not that well enforced. And our colleagues at Parks and Rec are thinking about this and thinking about it hard, but some other cities even have ordinances that cover private land, so you can't remove trees above a certain size even on private land, and we don't have that here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say because the fine's not going to happen. But when I was a kid, my parents removed a street tree from a friend of our house in the far northeast. Oh. Um, it was a tree that had gone too big. It, it's a kind of 80s development, one of the like, last developments that happened in the city. Yeah. Like area that has more twins and single family homes. And you should really have your trees in the lawn and not in the one foot wide planting strip. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you should. Yes. Uh, but so they removed this tree. I remember my uncle came over one day, removed this tree. I, I don't know, late 80s maybe this was. I, I don't remember exactly, but... Did they even know you needed a permit? Why, they, why would they not. know that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not widely yeah. known. That you, I mean, you would hope that the professional arborists that Did are they get hired in to do for it? no, nobody okay, knew. No. Right. I mean, no, nobody would. No, know. and nobody would have cared, right, frankly. Right, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, there <laughs> there were enough other issues in city budgets in the eighties, and for someone to go after like to you know city workers in a house. Well, in you Summerton. mentioned that now, <laughs> but Philadelphia does have a heritage tree uh, program where anything, any native tree or most native trees over. 24 inches in diameter heritage trees that offer some protection during the zoning review. And it took a little while, but London Plain was added to the list. So London Plain is the only non-native tree because (laughs) the city realized, well, look at all these London Plains. What, is somebody going to cut them down? No. So we have to add London Plain to that list. So it's the only non-native tree. Getting getting things in place in terms of procedures for tree planting and removal decisions can very much shape what species we have and how big the trees are. I want to thank Laura and Jason for joining us on the podcast today. Um, Pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at us at urbwildlifecast. Thanks so much for listening.
Twitter to make a quick note. Where we ended up talking by the Barnes Foundation. Seems to be a major housefinch hotspot. Um, we, I guess they're, they seem to be nesting in the, in the cracks that, or have nests, I think, in the sort of gaps and cracks around the facade of the museum and are singing like crazy from the London plane trees right here.